0: This is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Naz Modirzadeh.
2: And I'm Richard Atwood. On the 7th of April, Yemen's internationally recognized president, Abdul Rabbal Mansour Hadi, handed over power to a presidential council. Hadi's announcement comes only a few days after another announcement, this time by the UN, of a truce between Houthi rebels on one side and the Hadi government and other Houthi forces on the other. We're going to discuss today whether the change of government and the truce can help end a war that's brought about one of the world's worst humanitarian disasters.
0: The conflict, which began in 2014, when the Iran-backed Houthis overran the capital, morphed into a proxy war after Saudi Arabia and other Gulf powers intervened the next year. Since then, the economy has halved in what was already one of the world's poorest nations. Half the population has been pushed on the brink of famine. Fighting has torn Yemen apart since 2014, when Houthi rebels captured the capital Sana'a. That prompted Saudi Arabia, which saw the Houthis as an Iranian proxy, to join the war in support of the government of President Padi. But despite the Saudi-led coalition getting involved, including with heavy bombing campaigns against the Houthis, the rebels for years have been on the front foot. Last year, they looked set to capture the city and governorate of Marib the Hadi government's last northern stronghold. Then, earlier this year, Yemeni forces aligned with the United Arab Emirates pushed up from Shebwa, a governorate neighboring Marib. This offensive marked the first military gains against the Houthis for years. In response, the Houthis launched missile and drone attacks on Saudi Arabia and the UAE, prompting a further escalation of the Saudi air campaign. The Saudi-led coalition has announced the halt of military operations in Yemen during the Muslim holy month of Ramadan, starting on Wednesday morning. Now, the decision aims to help create an atmosphere conducive to negotiations between the warring parties in Yemen.
1: President Abdel Rabu Mansour Hadi has dismissed the vice president and handed over complete power to a new presidential council.
2: I am announcing the founding of a leading presidential council to complete the implementation of the transitional period's tasks. And I am transferring all my power to the presidential council in an irrevocable way. On the 1st of April, the UN's envoy Hans Grunberg announced a two-month truce. That came as a bit of a surprise, given that neither the Houthis nor their enemies had appeared to be in much mood for compromise. Since the announcement, the war's tempo appears to have slowed, even if some front lines are still seeing skirmishes. Then came Hadi's announcement, which we just heard, that he would hand over power to a presidential council. The new council comprises leaders of different anti-Houthi factions. They were meeting under the auspices of the Gulf Regional Bloc, the Gulf Corporation Council, or GCC, in the Saudi capital, Riyadh. So will the truce hold? And what does the new presidential council mean for the fractious anti-Houthi alliance? Could the truce and the new government open up space for a more formal ceasefire or even peace talks with the Houthis and their enemies? We're going to talk this through with Peter Salisbury, crisis group's Yemen expert. Peter's in close contact with people in Riyadh and with the Houthis. Peter, welcome back on.
1: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
2: So, uh, Peter, it's been quite a week. I mean, what, first the, the, the truce late last week and now President Hadi has handed over power. Uh, to, uh, to to as we heard the, the, the leadership council I mean what's just happened and what should we make of it?
1: I mean I'm still trying to get my head around that Richard uh, certainly uh, we knew about the rumors of a Ramadan truce. we knew about the rumors of a presidential council. we knew that the conversations were, were happening and I'm going to be totally um, honest with you. Uh, I was um, pretty pretty skeptical. Um, that either thing was, was going to move forward. But look, in the the past few days, really, in less than a week, we've seen the announcement of a nationwide and cross-border truce between the Houthis and what was the Hadi government at the time and the, the Saudi-led coalition. And then within days, Hadi has basically said, I'm ceding all power to this new presidential council um, with a, a president on top and, and seven members and they're going to run every aspect of everything from here on out and they put out a statement and one of the things that I've been pointed to by people in Riyadh is that that sort of there is this major line saying that this presidential council is empowered to and encouraged to negotiate with um, uh, Ansarallah with the Houthis Um, and, and what people are saying is this is very much going to be the push in the coming weeks and we had heard this indirectly from regional officials that this was the main aim of these talks in in Riyadh to create sort of a credible negotiating body to go speak to the Houthis um, and be seen a, a, as kind of like a, a realistic negotiating partner.
2: And Peter, we'll talk about the makeup of the new Leadership Council, what it means for prospects for peace talks uh, a bit later, but could we back up first and talk about the truce, uh, you know, as you said, announced by the UN six days before Hadi's handover of power what does that truce actually entail
1: so what's been announced is that the parties to the conflict so the houthis on one side the internationally recognized government of yemen and its allies on the others and, and realistically the the saudi-led coalition that backs it they're gonna freeze all military activity on the ground they're gonna stop maritime and air attacks inside of yemen and across Yemen's border. So that means a, a halt to Saudi-led airstrikes. It means a, a halt to Houthi-led missile and drone attacks across across their border. And at the same time, what the UN has said is that they've agreed to um, allow more fuel shipments to enter Hodeida port, which the government and the Saudis have basically been placing under fuel embargo for the, the past year and a half. And they're going to allow commercial flights into Sana'a International Airport for the first time in 2016. On top of that, they're also going to try and, and work on reopening roads, particularly those um, in, going in and out of Taz City, which has been besieged by the Houthis since 2016. So it's quite uh, the tall order.
2: Could you just sort of talk a little bit about the role of the UN envoy? We knew that he was pushing for a truce for Ramadan, essentially, for the Muslim holy Month. But um, I think most people felt it was quite a tall order. So the UN has just been doing this sort of shuttle diplomacy between the sides? Or, or, or how has the, the envoy been uh, been doing this?
1: Right. So one of the reasons this was a bit of a surprise is that the, the terms that have been agreed to have basically been on the table since around um, March 2020. So for the past two years, we've had negotiations pretty much around these same things, the fuel ships, the airports a halt in fighting, plus or minus one or two issues, including Taz. So what changed probably wasn't the the mediation approach. The difference does seem to simply be the the timing and the fact that the the parties, so realistically the Houthis and the Saudis, were more up for this now, and it made more sense for them to do this now than it had at any other time in the past two years. So Peter, how,
2: how should we understand the truce? Basically, it's a pause to the Houthis' offensive in Marib and other ground fighting, and a pause in their cross-border attacks, especially into Saudi Arabia, but also into the into the UAE. In exchange for a pause to the Saudi bombardment, plus the fuel going into Hadeda, something that, as you say, the Houthis have wanted for some time, plus uh, the airport in Sana open for a limited number of flights, again, something that the Houthis have wanted for a while, plus the opening up of other supply lines. And then you've got Taiz, as you mentioned. Do you you want to unpack a little bit why that city is referenced explicitly?
1: So Taiz is a city in in central Yemen, which has basically been besieged by the Houthis since 2016. And what they've done is they've been able to control all of the main roads going in and out of the city, north, east, south and, and west and that's left one small really dangerous road it looks like a a, a racing chicane um, going through this incredibly sort of muddy territory going in and out of the city which is still controlled by the the Houthis rivals and that's caused all sorts of humanitarian suffering it's much more expensive to live in Taiz. there's daily shelling and fighting around the city and one of the things that people in the anti-Houthi camp in general but obviously Tazis in particular, have been saying since the beginning of the, the war is, while well, people are always looking for carrots for the Houthis, for things to bring them to the table, be it fuel, be it the, the airports, but we need a sign of good faith as, as well. And the people of Tires shouldn't be forgotten. Um, so what, what we've seen is the UN's come out and it said, okay, we're going to reignite negotiations over Tires, which they said they would do after this big agreement, the Stockholm Agreement, in 2018. And that's actually probably gonna be the big test for many non-Houthi uh, observers of the, the UN's metal and its ability to get things done on the ground.
0: Peter, what is your sense of the Yemeni reaction to the announcement of this truce?
1: So, so the reaction's definitely been been mixed. I think there is a lot of relief because people are so exhausted. By this conflict regardless of their, their take on it and there's a sense that this is really really needed let's not forget that commodity prices are shooting up worldwide Yemen's a massive importer of food and fuel so the cost of living which was already well out of reach of most people is sky high so this feels like an opportunity for people to breathe particularly over Ramadan and I think the thing that we've seen people most excited about is the idea that families in Sanaa and outside of Sanaa, who haven't been able to see each other for years, will be able to reunite, and that people who need medical treatment in Sanaa will be able to to get out um, to the treatment somewhere else, and that's just a really emotive issue. Um, I, I know that sort of even people who are strongly in the anti-Houthi camp are very excited by this idea, but at the same time, look, we've we've been here before. Um, people extremely mistrustful of one another the houthis have a narrative that the the aggression as they call it that the sort of saudi-led side of the war will never end because it's backed by the us and the uk and then the houthis rivals claim that the houthis will never really negotiate in in good faith so there's a general expectation i think on both sides that the other side isn't really serious about this
0: So Peter, last time we had a chance to speak with you, it looked like the Houthis were about to take Marib and that there was a sense that that would really be a decisive shift in the conflict. Can you tell us a bit about how we got to where we are today?
1: Right. So at the end of last year, it definitely looked pretty bleak. The Houthis had been pushing towards Marib city and and governorate for the better part of, of two years. They made some pretty big breakthroughs in areas around Marib in September of of last year. And the Saudis, the the Yemeni government, anti-Houthi forces on, on the ground for a variety of reasons just didn't seem to have much of an answer for it. Um, and internationally, there wasn't going to be big support from the US or the UK to try and sort of turn things around. And what happened was, at the beginning of this year, the UAE appears to have convinced some of its allies on the ground without actually directly entering into the conflict. It convinced its allies to move up into this this governorate called Shabwa, take back some territory the Houthis had taken a few months before, and then push into the south of Marib. And that made it much, much harder for the Houthis to continue their assault on, on Marib. The Houthis responded by launching missile and drone strikes, um, on Saudi Arabia, as they have been doing since the beginning of the war, but also on the UAE, which uh, ended up killing, I think, two or three people, injuring quite a few at a, a fuel depot just outside of Abu Dhabi International Airport. And that attracted a lot of international attention. So we saw this ratcheting up of the war, but I think it became pretty clear thereafter that neither side was going to score some kind of decisive win in this thing, and that it had reached, for the time being, something like a hurting stalemate. And that's where we are. I think that both sides feel like they, they gain more from a pause right now than they do from trying to continue with the status quo.
0: So how can we understand the Houthis' motivation for signing up to this truce?
1: Right. And that's that's a really good question. I, I would say that they've expended significant blood and treasure on trying to take Ma'rib. They've been stymied in their efforts to do so. They've also faced, over the last few months, a real economic crisis where a big part of this conflict is the different parties trying to use economic levers to hurt their rivals. And the Houthis have really been running out of fuel and have struggled for hard currency in in their areas. So they needed to get these fuel shipments in. And they needed to um, just get some basic improvements in, in the local economy to, to be able to shore things up. So I think it made sense for them, again, tactically to pause for now, to get some fuel in, to improve standards of, of the economy inside their areas.
0: So when you put it that way, it sounds less like a truce and more like a sort of refueling and resilience building moment. Uh, Do you think that's how the Houthis see it?
1: That's really hard to say, but when we talk to the Houthis, what they'll tell us is that they have been very clear in what their conditions are for a a ceasefire or a truce or peace talks for a number of years. And on on paper, that's true. Um, They describe collectively the decision to shut down the airport, restrictions on goods, fuel in particular, entering Hodeidah as a siege of Yemen. And what they've said is a ceasefire is really an end to fighting between them and the Saudis because they see this as their war with the Saudis rather than a civil war with other Yemeni groups in which the Saudis play a a part. So they say end the siege and give us a ceasefire with the Saudis. That means stop the the airstrikes. Um, So from the UN's perspective, the challenge has been getting the Houthis to acknowledge this is also a war with the government, with all these other... Forces on the ground and the ground fighting has to stop as well at the the same time. So the Houthis will say, well, this is exactly what we've been talking about since day one. When in reality, sort of the innovation here is that they finally kind of said, okay, we'll stop the fighting on the ground for these two months, um, and we'll we'll sort of do negotiations on on tires. Um And when you dig into it a bit further. Claims from people on the ground that they continue to, to push towards Marib or their skirmishes around Marib and that they're significantly bolstering their, their forces on, on the ground. So I, I do think this is a question of, of wait and see.
2: But it's still true to say that it's hard to imagine that the Houthis would have signed up for this had battlefield dynamics not sort of been working against them over the last couple of months. I mean, if they'd had a chance to take Marib, presumably they wouldn't have agreed to the truth. Sure, yeah, we
1: have the, the data for that, right? We've got two years of the UN saying, hey, why don't we have a ceasefire and this is what we'll, we'll try and get you for it. Um, and the Houthis, you know, doing what, what armed groups uh, do in general, which is to say in principle, that sounds really interesting, but we need to like quibble over the, the details. And generally, look, that's that's the mark when parties go from wanting to fight over the details and kind of obstruct the process to saying, okay, let's go ahead and and do this. So clearly there's been a a change.
2: So that's the Houthis. And if we move to their rivals, I mean, obviously, since the truce, Hadi has uh, handed over power. Uh, So with hindsight, it sort of looks as though his government was pushed into the truce by the Saudis, right?
1: When we speak to government officials, they say that they were engaged throughout the the process on, on this They point to the language around TAS. They point to the relatively limited nature of the truce. So we have a copy of what both parties say is is what they've signed up to, which the UN hasn't published. And in fact, what it says is 18 fuel ships will enter Pardada over the course of the the two months, that there will be two weekly flights to Oman and um, Cairo over the course of of the, the two months. And that's much more limited. Than what, what was being pushed for from the Houthi side in, in the past. So the government guys are going to say, well, we, we managed to create these limitations. It's only for two months. It isn't an indefinite ceasefire. But at the same time, uh, the strong sense you get um, is that they still weren't that happy with it. They, they didn't really want to do it right now. And that this was more of a, a Saudi than a government decision.
0: Peter, can you tell us your sense of how US Saudi relations at this point are playing into both the timing of the truce as well as what seems to be on the table?
1: So, this is where we we move into the realm of of speculation more than hard fact. The Saudis aren't coming out and saying that the truce is this to do with, you know, US relations, Iran, so on and so forth. But what we can say is the relations between The U.S. on the one hand and the Saudis on on the other have been strained. So when Biden came into office, he refused to speak to MBS. He called Saudi Arabia um, a pariah state for the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. Um,
2: And Peter, just quickly, I'm sure most listeners know, but, but MBS is the Saudi crown prince and de facto ruler Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, Jamal Khashoggi was the journalist killed in the Saudi consulate in Turkey, whose murder US intelligence reports say that MBS was complicit in.
1: Right. And the US had really tried to pressure the Saudis into just negotiating and enter the war on the first available terms. And what we've seen happening, Russia invaded Ukraine. That's caused these massive commodity spikes on global markets, prices, price spikes, Oil is really expensive, and the U.S. wants to get the Saudis to pump more oil. At the same time, it's negotiating um, a return to the joint comprehensive um, plan of of action, which you're both very familiar with, the Iran nuclear deal. And I think that one read of the Saudi decision to enter into the truce is they've been under all this U.S. pressure for so long um, that they've got to a point where... Marab is no longer completely under threat. They're not threatened with total humiliation in Yemen, but at the same time, they're not really able at this moment in time to completely change the the battlefield dynamic.
2: And uh, let's come to the, the the U.S. in a moment, but just before we do, the, the the Emiratis. So, I mean, this has been interesting, right? I mean, they they were initially quite involved in the war in the early stages when the Saudis sort of must first mustered their coalition. Emiratis and Saudis hadn't always seen eye to eye in Yemen. I mean, the Emiratis had backed the southern separatists, the STC, which was different to the groups that the Saudis were backing. And then the Emirates sort of pulled out of the war really a few years ago now. And yet it's Emirati-aligned forces that have led this offensive against the Houthis, presumably, although the Emiratis don't confirm this with Emirati backing. What explains the shift in Emirati calculations?
1: You know, when the UAE announced its withdrawal from Yemen in 2019, several things had happened. One was, of course, the the killing of Khashoggi, this massive international reaction to it, which then ended up turning into a big focus on Yemen um, and alleged Saudi war crimes. And then people started saying, oh, the UAE are there as well. So it was pretty bad for the UAE's public image. And at the same time, the forces, the UAE had been backing on the ground Southern separatists and others ended up getting into a series of fights with the internationally recognized government that ended up with the STC, this um, pro independence group, controlling Aden, Yemen's temporary capital. And that, in turn, had the government of Yemen's permanent representative to the United Nations um, condemning the UAE in the Security Council, and people from the Yemeni government describing the Emiratis acting like occupiers. So they ended up in this place where they'd come in to support the Saudis as part of this sort of Mohammed bin Salman, Mohammed bin Zayed, who's kind of his counterpart, also crown prince, also de facto ruler in the UAE. They they were pretty aligned for a period, but it got to a point where they were pissed off with the Yemeni government, which they thought was was fickle and was working with groups they didn't like, particularly Islam, which is inaccurately described but regularly described as the Yemeni version of the Muslim Brotherhood um, and at the same time they they had kind of pushed the Saudis to try and work out a way to end the war a few times they didn't think it was particularly winnable militarily and one of the things they said when they they drew down they just looked at it all and they said there's no point in us being here but what they did say was you'll miss us you're going to regret the way that you've treated us particularly directed towards the the government and um, lo and behold really two years later um, they, they really came in and saved the Saudis from complete hum- humiliation. If Marib had fallen, that would have been really just humiliating for the Saudis. And the Houthis would have controlled a massive additional strip of the Saudi-Yemeni border. And what they've been able to do is they've come in, they've been able to come in and say, okay, we're going to help you out. But the general sort of received wisdom among Yemenis is the cost of that is going to be um, the strengthening of UAE allies as players within the government, as military players on, on the ground, and the subsequent weakening of some of the groups that the UAE doesn't like.
2: So, Peter, this then brings us on to the new Leadership Council and sort of what this means for the anti-Houthi alliance. And you know, it's clear from what you just said how fractious that alliance has has been over, over recent years. I mean, you talked about some of the groups that the, the Saudis support. We talked a bit about Isla. Uh, you've got the Southern Transitional Council, the separatists, traditionally backed by the Emiratis, other groups the Emiratis are backing. You've also got, um, which we haven't mentioned yet, Tarek Saleh, the nephew of Yemen's long-serving ruler, Ali Abdullah Saleh. Is it yet clear what the the new government means for the sort of balance of force within the anti-Houthi front? I mean, is it a better representation of the forces on the ground, of those fighting the Houthis?
1: Broadly speaking, it's much more representative of the key military and political factions who control territory on the ground across Yemen. And I think the question I and others are are asking now is whether the aim here is to provide a united front and credible negotiating partner for the Houthis in peace talks, or is it to um uh, allow for a unified military push across all the major military fronts um all all over all over yemen and only time will tell what i suspect is there'll be a push towards peace talks and that there will be a sense that sort of there are carrots and sticks that the the coalition and the anti-houthi bloc have in a way that they didn't have before which is you can negotiate with these guys and you have credible negotiating partners Or you can continue to fight the war, but there will be much greater opportunity for a multi-front push against the, the Houthis.
2: And can you just run through sort of on the leadership council itself? President Hadi still is president, but he's formally handed over power and handed over the power to negotiate with the Houthis to this leadership council. He's dismissed his vice president. So who is on this, who's actually on this council and kind of who do they represent?
1: So what we have is a council led by um, a figure from the historical ruling party, but who has relatively close ties to other political factions who is much liked by the Saudis and isn't particularly disliked by the, the Emiratis. And then you, in addition to the president of the council, who's effectively taking over the powers of the presidency, you have seven more members who represent the main political and military factions operating on the, the ground in Yemen, with one possible exception. So you've got the guys on the, the Red Sea coast. You've got the guys in the south of the the country. You've got the guys in Ma'rib and Hadramaut. All these different places, which are important for for different reasons. But the one exception that we see is, even though a lot of the new leaders um, of this council, including the president of the council, are from Taiz governorate, um, the actual m- leadership of of the, the military groups and, and the political leadership inside of Taiz city isn't really represented here and i think that that could prove um a, a point of contention and tension and there is a sense that the major factions of Islam really lost out here
2: and peter how have the anti houthi factions you know especially as you say uh, islah which appears to have lost out and the houthis themselves how have they responded to hadis handing over power to the new leadership council
1: absolutely so the response from a lot of people in the anti-Houthi camp is pretty positive. Hadi was not popular. There is a sense that this provides much more opportunity for a united front against the Houthis, either militarily or politically, and that this really kind of changes the game somewhat. Whether or not that's true, we'll have to to wait and see. Um, For the Houthis, what they've been doing is going out there and saying, well, this is just a, a joke. It's a, a reshuffling of, of guys who live in hotels outside of the country. It proves how illegitimate um, this government is, that the, the Saudis and others can simply choose to change it up at any given moment. And what they're saying is, well, this is a war with Saudi Arabia. This proves it. And we need to negotiate with the Saudis. And then some contacts uh, of mine who. Are from within Islam, um, are very very unhappy because they see this as as really kind of an assault on Islam, an attempt to to really marginalise and, and sideline it, and bring these UAE aligned figures to the fore.
2: And does this does sort of Hadi's handover of power, new government, does this sort of cast a different light on the truce itself? I mean, it looks as though the a sort of reconfigured anti-Houthi alliance was something that the Saudis and the Emiratis, if not cooked up in advance, but at least sort of was on the cards before the latest offensive by Emirati-aligned forces.
1: Certainly the, the story that we've been hearing since more or less last September or October was that this was on the cards and the question was composition and timing. But certainly by the end of last year, the, the chatter in Yemeni circles was that there was a sense that the Houthis needed to be pushed back militarily, at least partially, and that you needed a reconfiguration of the political makeup of the, the internationally recognized government if there was going to be any effort at negotiating an, an end to the, the war. And to an extent, both of those those factors have now been uh, addressed. So it's very much in keeping with what we expected what we thought was coming out of this sort of realignment of the UAE and Saudi Arabia the question of course is whether or not it can hold cuz the the members of this council are not historically the best of friends
0: so peter you're you're describing an incredibly complex array of networks interests military tactics do you see a pathway whereby there's enough overlap and alignment that this could turn into a lasting agreement between the parties?
1: That's a really good question. And the, the answer is, is not an, an easy one. There's not a, a straight line there. Um, I think what unites most of these groups at this point is the desire to either be in power or stay in power. Um, so if you're the Houthis, you want to maintain your current position or improve it if you're one of the anti-Houthi groups, you kind of want to be at the front of the anti-Houthi coalition so that in the event there are talks or there is a settlement or you get to be the the big boss. That's the very simplified version of it.
0: It seems that the... This sort of narrative, if there is any, that we get on Yemen is this idea that there is an aggressor and there is a victim, and that's the story. Is it worth noting here that, I mean, the Houthis also see themselves as representing people and having a set of political objectives, and that this is a story of competing political visions, not just a story of civilian immiseration?
1: Sure. Um, I mean, as as Richard knows, we have uh, a report that we've written on the Houthis, um, and it's in the interests of all of the parties to this conflict to try and control the narrative of their rivals. And the Houthis have a very specific story they want to tell about themselves, which is they see themselves as revolutionaries. Their sort of main political goals are kind of a purer form of Islam, but also removing the... Um, western and u.s influence from the region and and removing kind of this this sort of perceived servitude of of arab countries to to western powers um so they they present themselves as sort of like something in this classic lineage of kind of like non-aligned movement attached to this quite kind of islamist ideology um and tied in with a very sort of yemeni cultural view of things and then on, on the other side, you know, there was a UN-led transition going on, which was interrupted by the, the Houthi coup and the war. And the argument for a lot of the, the people in the, the government camp is we just want to return Yemen to this path to democratization um, that th- we were we were on. And Hadi has kind of become, for some, a symbol of this, although it's obviously more complex than this. And there was a general sense that he wasn't that interested by the end in actually <clears throat> having a a democratic Yemen, but rather he thought it would be nice to be kind of the the ruler for for a long, long time. So everyone's got like a a positive spin on what they're trying to get out of this. And everyone has a story about, about their own grievances and their own victimhood.
2: And Peter, while we're talking about the Houthis, obviously one of the most contentious things is the degree of support they get or the relationship they have with Iran and particularly the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guards, um, you want to say something about uh, about that relationship?
1: Sure. I mean, the the Houthi-Iranian relationship at this point is undeniable. But the actual nature extent of it and the extent to which Iran caused the shots with the Houthis is still uh, a big question. But look, I mean, the weapons the Houthis and the technology the Houthis use to launch cross-border attacks are pretty plainly given to them. They're given the capacity to use them. By Iran. And it, our research suggests that the groups involved in deploying these weapons are particularly close with um, IRGC, Quds Force, um, with, with Lebanese Hezbollah, um, and others. Um, the Houthis have ambassadors for their, their foreign ministry in all of the, the major countries of the, the, the so-called axis of, of resistance. So sort of Iran-aligned uh, non-state and, and state actors all, all, all over the, the Middle East. Um, and the Houthis are increasingly sort of echoing some of uh, Iranian rhetoric. The way the Houthis would put it is we're a part of the axis of resistance, and that doesn't mean that we do what Iran tells us. And the way the Houthis rivals will put it will, will be like, well, there's all this evidence of ties to Iran. Therefore, the Houthis are just a front. They're a pure proxy for, for Iran. And you look at the evolution of the group, it's really hard to make that, that argument. And a lot of people, what a lot of people are doing are, are conflating the current context, which is the Houthis are very close with Iran, and they do rely on Iran, particularly for these cross-border border, um, military capacities, but also probably for some of their their military tactics. Certainly, their their public messaging, and they're saying, "Well, that's a static relationship. It was always like this. We we just only saw it now." And the way we've described it is, "Yeah, there's probably a relationship, but it's pretty tentative." and it grows over the course of the war. At the moment, there's no way the Houthis or Iran are going to give up their relationship with each other because they bring so much value to each other. And for a lot of Western observers, Western diplomats, the only solution is to find a way to get the Houthis to drop um, their relationship with Iran and somehow kind of move into sort of alignment with sort of a more Western worldview. And we think that at the moment, if you end the war tomorrow, the Houthis have to be part of things, But we also have to be realistic about the extent to which they're going to want to play nice with kind of the US or UK ambassador, as opposed to want to sort of maintain and nurture this relationship with Iran, which has been so mutually beneficial.
2: And so this brings us to the US and of course, the negotiations over the Iran nuclear deal, which at the moment seem to be, even despite everything going on with Ukraine, obviously a big priority for the US. But... I mean, tell us what sort of impact. Let's, let's say there is a new nuclear deal. I mean, this takes care of Iran's nuclear file. It doesn't take care of Iran's role in the region, or even its antagonism towards the US in the region doesn't take care of its support to the Houthis and other groups. So even if there is a nuclear deal, it doesn't necessarily change this dynamic of Iran and the Houthis. And if there isn't a nuclear deal, if the deal collapses, then you know potentially that fuels even further animosity in the region.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that there are tactical short-term things that Iran can ask the Houthis to do, but that doesn't change the long-term trajectory of the, the relationship between the two. Um, again, they're just of such mutual benefit to each other in the, the long term, and they're kind of so wedded in terms of their regional view of things, of who should have influence and who should not have influence. That it would be a stretch to say that JCPOA is going to change that. It might mean some slightly different behavior in, in the short to medium term, but it doesn't mean that Iran's going to say, okay, we're going to drop the Houthis in order to make sure that this deal is sustained. And it doesn't mean that the Houthis are, are going to sort of become moderated or move away from Iran. Either.
2: So beyond the JCPOA, the, the, the nuclear deal, Uh, Could you say a little bit, Peter, about sort of U.S. policy? President Biden came to power uh, sort of with a lot of energy in trying to sort of end the Yemen conflict, which initially involved sort of basically, as you talked about, a lot of pressure on the Saudis. I mean, has that sort of petered out? Did you get the sense that the U.S. has been much involved behind the scenes, either in the truce or in the, the sort of change of government?
1: So, yeah, I'd say that when the Biden administration came in, there was a sense um, among policymakers that this was somewhere that they could really make a dent pretty quickly. And that all they needed to do was put a lot of pressure on Saudi Arabia to, in effect, quote unquote, end the war. um, And that would be that. And the problem very quickly became that one, the Saudis were able to resist that pressure more than many had assumed and two, that the Houthis um, continued to push on on Marib governor. And it, did, it was quite difficult to make this argument that you end the war by getting the Saudis to make concessions when, in fact, sort of the, the factions that they back were militarily Im- imperiled. We've seen the pressure continue from the, the United States to work towards a ceasefire, and obviously that, that's now now happened, What I think was always missing was this additional piece of a credible counterparty to to the Houthis. And there have been various conversations about how to restructure the Yemeni government with with some U.S. involvement, but it does feel like the the Saudis are kind of moving towards what the Americans are asking them to do, but with a, a pretty substantial insurance policy now in place. So if this works, if the truce holds and we move towards negotiations, then the Saudis can say, see, we, we really are interested in peace. And if it all falls to pieces, then they can turn around to the Americans and say, you told us that this was going to work, that we just had to make these concessions. We even sort of restructured the, the government. Yet here we are. And, and this proves the, the point that the Houthis can't be, be negotiated with and then push for, for acceptance of um, a military solution or something there around.
0: Peter, help us to understand what we should be watching for in the coming weeks here. What do you see as the next steps?
1: I came into this week skeptical that there was going to be a truce and skeptical that these talks in Riyadh were really going to produce anything. So maybe my predictive powers aren't the ones that you want to rely on right now. But I, I will say that, I mean, look, we're looking at sort of two or three outcomes here. One is the truce holds and that there are peace talks. Who knows? Maybe we'll see Houthi officials landing in Riyadh in the coming days. It's not beyond the, the realm of the, the possible. I'm skeptical, but I mean, my skepticism is proving uh, unwarranted on, on other things right now. And the other is the, the, the truce collapses and we see everybody going hell for leather on the ground to try and obtain a, a better position um, and gain a negotiating position. And I think sort of the reality will probably be somewhere in between. We're gonna see the Houthi-Saudi back channel pick up the pace. We're gonna see intra-Yemeni negotiations really start moving quite quickly because all of a sudden there's an actual game here. It isn't just the zero-something of this president in Riyadh with no real influence on the ground and the Houthis on the other side. Everyone's got something to, to play for now. and I, I think that's going to produce some pretty chaotic and unexpected uh, effects. But I, I suspect that we'll see sort of some strange things happening on the ground. Lots of people talking. Maybe we'll see an uptick in violence and then a move towards talks. Maybe we'll see a, a big escalation. But I think that the direction of travel is towards politics of some kind now. Peter,
2: thanks so much for coming on.
0: Thank you, Peter so much for having me hold your fire is a production of the international crisis group I'm Naz Modirzadeh
2: and I'm Richard Atwood you can find all of our work including on Yemen on our website crisisgroup.org you can also follow us on twitter at crisis group
0: thank you very much to our producers Sam Mednick and Kevin Murphy and to Finn Johnson
2: And thanks, of course, to all our listeners. Please do get in touch with us, uh, podcasts at crisisgroup.org. If you have any suggestions, feel free to leave us a question or comment. Give us a positive rating or review if you like the show. And we hope you'll join us again next week.
1: Here's a cool fact.